Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories about bitter cold and the Gilded Age. First, he tells the story of the Long Winter of 1880-81, which bombarded the United States with storm after storm. Then he tells the story of the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition, a scientific expedition by the United States to the polar region, which went horribly wrong. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. The Oxford English Dictionary concludes that the word blizzard is likely an onomatopoeia, created with the same sense that created words like blow and blast and bluster. It was used as early as the 18th century, but it was an uncommon word that did not uniquely refer to winter weather until it became popularized by the press in reference to the winter of 1880 and 81, a winter that was made famous by author Laura Ingalls Wilder's 1940 novel, The Long Winter. Variously called the long winter, the hard winter, the snow winter, the black winter, or the starvation winter. Journalist J. Mark Powell said of it, If you think you've experienced severe winter weather, no matter how bad it is where you are, it can't hold a candle to this. The mother of all bad winters. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The October blizzard of 1880 across the American Great Plains was, by any measure, exceptional. For one, the storm was early. A June 19, 2020 edition of the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society noted that while October blizzards are fairly rare, they are even rarer in the eastern half of South Dakota. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources describes the blizzard, which struck Minnesota on October 16th, as, to this day, the earliest blizzard in Minnesota history. The storm was particularly devastating because that fall had been, to that point, exceptionally warm. Meteorological records in Yankton, South Dakota had logged an October high of 84 degrees. The highs on October 13th and 14th had been 62 and 58. The weather before the storm was, in fact, quite mild. Author Michelle Morris, writing for the website Heroes, Heroines, and History, explains, During the summer of 1880, the people of Dakota Territory had no forewarning of the winter to come. The Indian summer lasted into October, and folks were taking their time with final preparations for winter. Hay still needed to be cut. Feed corn picked and firewood gathered. Little did these hardy pioneers know how profoundly a little procrastination would soon affect them. And that effect would be significant. Homesteader Edward Jensen of Grant County, South Dakota later wrote, The winter came before we were ready for it. John Stanley, editor of the Gary, South Dakota, Gary Interstate, later recalled, It was a glorious autumn season and we had the farm work well advanced when on October 15th, Another date that is unforgettable. A drizzling rain was most acceptable to everyone. It was a pleasant evening within that farm home, with the children all present again, and with the welcome rain pattering on the roof and against the windows. But the blizzard was already brewing. The U.S. Weather Service's monthly weather review noted that the depression was centered on Dodge City, Kansas, on the morning of the 15th. But during the day, the depression decreased rapidly to the north and east of the center, and the storm increased in violence as it moved to the northeast. As a result, heavy snow blockading railway lines was reported in the region between the Mississippi and the Missouri River. The National Weather Service explains in its Weather History Archive, A violent early season blizzard devastated Minnesota and the Dakotas. Winds gusted to 70 miles an hour at Yankton, South Dakota, and snowdrifts 10 to 15 feet high were reported in northwest Iowa and southeast South Dakota. Canby, Minnesota reported 20 feet high snowdrifts from the storm. Historian Herbert Schell of the University of South Dakota wrote in his book, History of South Dakota. Mary Paulson, a child of immigrant Norwegian parents in Yellow Medicine County, Minnesota, remembers opening the door on the morning of October 16th to a wall of snow that just fell into the house. 
Her father had to get up on a chair to make a hole in the snow in order to crawl out of the house. Children were able to slide from the peaks of roofs during breaks in the snow much of the winter. Even substantial two-story homes had snow up to the second-floor windows. No one was prepared for the deep snow so early in the season, and farmers all over the region were caught with their crops to harvest and with fuel supplies low. They had not yet milled their grain or dug out their potatoes when the first blizzard of this snow winter arrived. Professor Margaret Mays Boosted of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, writing in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, explained the cause. In the October blizzard of 1880, a surface low-pressure system stalled in northwest Iowa and northeast Nebraska. To its northwest, a prolonged period of precipitation combined with a cold air pocket that brought sub-freezing temperatures and gusty winds as a tight pressure gradient persisted. The combination of precipitation at sub-freezing temperatures, snowfall, and strong winds due to a tight pressure gradient likely produced the blizzard conditions. The stalled system allowed snowfall and blowing snow to last for two to three days in the region. The storm was severe enough to block transportation. A letter by Eliza Jane Wilder, aunt of Laura Ingalls Wilder, held in the National Archives, describes the storm. In October, a blizzard came for three days. We could not see an object ten feet in front of us. The railroads were blocked for ten days, snow in the cuts being packed like ice. After the storm ceased, I went to town for flour and coal, or merchants had none. A carload of flour would have been there in a few hours when blockaded. The Canton, South Dakota newspaper, the Canton Advocate, reported, A terrible snowstorm, probably the worst that Southern Dakota ever witnessed, passed over this region of the country, commencing on last Friday with thunder and lightning and continuing until Saturday at midnight. It caused a general suspension of business, blowing down telegraph wires, blockading railroads, the snow drifting to the depth from 15 to 25 feet in cuts along the line of roads. The storm was large. The website Magic Mast and Sturdy Ships explains, This mid-fall blizzard covered a 500-square-mile area, including parts of Nebraska, the Dakotas, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and northern Michigan. It deposited several inches of snow on city streets and in the county glens alike, damaged property and destroyed vegetation. On shore in Illinois and Wisconsin, the wind blew at about 125 miles per hour. Only a few inches of snow fell, but the high wind drove it with such force that railway cuts in most roads were packed with drifts. Traffic in Milwaukee and Chicago came to a complete standstill. Rescue parties and sleighs and sleds floundered to stalled trains with food and blankets. The windows in many Milwaukee and Chicago homes were broken by the force of the wind, and many people shivered in front of their fireplaces and coal stoves. It isn't clear how many people died in this blizzard, probably not as many as died in the Great Blizzard of 1888, but there were at least 80 known casualties. The sidewheel steamer Alpina, 197 feet in length with a 26.66-foot beam, was built by Thomas Arnold of Gallagher & Company at Marine City, Michigan in 1866. Operated by the Goodrich Line, the steamer left Grand Haven, Michigan, bound for Chicago on Friday evening, October 15th, at 9.30 p.m. The storm that had puddled the Dakotas struck the Great Lakes on the 16th, where it earned the nickname, The Big Blow. It was, according to the website Michigan Shipwrecks, the worst gale in Lake Michigan recorded history. Magic Mast and Sturdy Ships describes the storm. The wind from Nebraska blew around the Alpina as an early morning squall. By the afternoon, the squall had turned into a hurricane, and when darkness came, the storm escalated to shrieking fury. The temperature dropped suddenly to 27 degrees below zero, and sleet and snow slashed the Alpina. John Deerkoff, captain of the ship Hattie Wells, which managed to make it back to Milwaukee, saw Alpina founder. He reported, She was halfway around, and that wind just took right hold of her and turned her over. Debris started reaching Michigan shores the following day. At least 80 people died. In Michigan, that October 1880 blizzard is also known as the Alpina Storm, and it was just the beginning of the long winter. In his 1905 History of South Dakota, state historian Doan Robinson wrote, The Great Blizzard, the middle of October 1880, was the initial performance of winter unprecedented and never succeeded in severity in the history of Dakota, but the Northwest. Professor Shell noted that although most of this early snow disappeared, heavy precipitation throughout the winter resulted in an accumulation of more than 11 feet of snow in many communities. Professor Boosted explained that there was another blizzard in November, still another starting Christmas evening. Then, storm frequency increased from early January through the month of February. For the 59 days of January and February, there were just 12 days with no probable snow reported in any of the sites in the region. Otherwise, snow fell in at least one observing location on all the other days. The radio program National Notebook in 2004 explained, There have been colder winters on the prairie and deadlier blizzards. 
But for sheer volume and duration of snow, that snow winter has never been rivaled. Eliza Jane Wilder wrote, Storm followed storm. After the middle of December, I think no trains reached DeSmit, South Dakota until May. The impact on travel of the constant storms was probably the worst part. Professor Shell wrote that train service in the region was almost entirely suspended in the region by January. Railroads tried digging out the rails, only to have new storms arise and cover them again. A storm on February 2nd halted the train traffic from Sioux Falls entirely. The train did not run again until June 15th, four and a half months later. Shell concludes, the hardships were due not so much to low temperatures as to the privations caused by the snow blockade. Food and fuel grew scarce as connections with the outside world were cut off. Professor Boosted documented the rail closures, noting that during that gap, food and fuel could not be transported to settlers in the region via rail. Because of the abundant snowfall, overland transport also was hampered, though some travel via horse and horse-drawn sleigh was possible. By Christmas, Shell said that starvation loomed. Liza Jane Wilder's letter wrote, Many families were reported frozen to death, and others lived wholly on turnips, some on wheat ground in a coffee mill. The coffee mill was because of a particular problem. Even for those homesteaders who had gotten the wheat crop in, many had not had time to have it milled into flour. Families were forced to grind small amounts at a time in a coffee mill that turned it into an edible gruel or bread. Likewise, many had not had time to lay in the winter fuel supply and were forced to twist straw into blocks for fuel, a time-consuming effort that still produced inferior fuel. The impact was not just on the people. The accumulation had a significant impact on livestock. Professor Shell wrote, uh, Prairies were covered with snow so deep that cattle could not graze on the buffalo grass on which the ranchers relied for their winter feed. The snow came early in the fall and laid on the ground all winter, so deep that the cattle could not travel. Thousands of heads starved to death, sometimes in sight of the hay which ranchers had put up to be fed when the cattle could not graze. Of the 3,000 head on the Cook Ranch, only 800 were left in the spring. The website Pioneer Girl wrote, Many settlers wrote of finding cattle lost in the snow and suffocating or already dead. Amos Whiting found cattle that had been hit by the train heading east in Desmit. The engineer hadn't noticed anything except snow. Shell noted that the impact on livestock changed the nature of settlement on the Great Plains, as many ranchers were obliged to close out, thus leaving the fertile prairies open to settlement by the farmers, who came a few years later. And the deprivations did not end with the spring thaw. Rather, the mass of accumulating snow, drifts as high as 11 feet were said to last the whole winter, thawed quickly, causing floods. Shell explains, when the snow finally melted in late spring of 1881, huge sections of the plains were flooded. Boosted notes, ice jam flooding arrived first in early to mid-April as rain fell on top of snow and ran off, swelling rivers and breaking up thick ice covering them. Newspaper editor George Washington Kingsbury wrote in his 1915 History of Dakota Territory that flooding caused by an ice dam flooded the entire town of Vermilion, South Dakota, population six or seven hundred, in less than an hour. Despite flooding so bad that Shell reports that children remember parents rowing boats to town over the corn and wheat fields, the winter continued, with another blizzard striking in April. Kingsbury described one night during this long peril when a blizzard prevailed, making it impossible to row a boat or remain long exposed to the freezing blast. The house of Hans J. Hansen, located between the towns of Yankton and Vermilion, with ten people in it, was lifted from its foundation and floated away. The occupants were able to construct a raft and escape. Floods continued through May. Eventually, Professor Boosted says, The Missouri and Mississippi rivers, as well as most of their tributaries upstream of their confluence, were swelled to record levels that stood for decades, and in a few locations, still stand as the flood of record. Some towns were relocated. Others disappeared entirely. In Nebraska, the flood was so severe that it changed the course of the Missouri River. But how severe was the winter really? It's not a simple question to answer. Professor Boosted notes that meteorological data in the Central Great Plains region in the early 1880s was sparse in coverage, especially when seeking stations with long-term records that predate the hard winter and continue through the present. But Boosted was able to collect enough available data to rank the long winter on the Accumulated Winter Season Severity Index, a measure that includes temperature averages and extremes, snowfall totals, snow depth, and the duration between onset and cessation of winter weather conditions, and conclude. The long winter emerges as one of the most severe since European-descended settlers arrived to the central United States and began documenting weather. Author Dan L. White concludes in his book, The Long Hard Winter of 1880-81, What Was It Like?, that it was an incredible, agonizing, awful winter. 
And yet in the midst of that, the pioneer spirit held through. People worked together to make sure that families had enough food. People risked their lives to travel between storms to get grain to a mill so to be ground into flour so that people could make it through the winter. Even Laura Ingalls Wilder's book concluded on a hopeful note with the family having a belated Christmas dinner in the spring after the train was able to get through and bring food. That book finishes, spring had come, the sun was shining warm, the winds were soft, and the green grass growing. The newspaper The Black Hills Pioneer opines, if there's a lesson to be learned from the long winter, it's that times can be tough, but good times will come again. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and of course some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. So I don't know about everyone listening, but for me this year has actually been a reasonably rough winter. We've had kind of a couple of years of a, a little more mild winters, and then for instance, what, like last week we got 15 inches of snow or more, and uh, I had to shovel that. And what I can say is I'm glad it wasn't what they got in 1880 and 1881. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah, we've had, actually, it's been reasonably mild here. We had a pretty good winter last winter. But, uh, yeah, if you've ever think you've been through a big winter, you know, people are like, oh, the blizzard of 86. Uh, we have no idea. Yeah. We have we have no idea uh, what it could be like. Uh, and that, that, that winter, I mean, it was shocking. It came so early that they hadn't put, away the, put out the firewood. It came so early that uh, a lot of the grain hadn't been milled. Uh, so and but I mean, you know, imagine, you know, the worst winter storms that we have. Imagine that going on for months at a time without telephones. Yeah. I mean, the only way they had to bring supply in was by train and the trains couldn't even get through the snow. So, yeah, yeah we 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 like to think that we've been through hard winters. We we have no idea. Yeah, you know, I try to think uh, what we would do, you know, in today's day and age. But we have some we just have so many more uh, resources. I, I mean, we've got it's much easier to plow a paved road but we mm -hmm. also i uh, probably can get planes in in shorter uh you know in a mm -hmm. shorter time period than you could get a train you don't have to clear the whole track <laughs> for, for for the plane there, there would be uh there would be agricultural oh, yeah. losses there would be livestock losses and we've had those some in the last few years uh certainly there, there'll probably be some people that die in the cold or something like that on the nights of blizzards but the thing is we can plow roads yeah. in between blizzards today uh, and we had we actually compiled the train tracks too, uh, and you're right. There's going to be periods when you can get airplanes in and stuff. So that even if you happen to have, and I mean, like I think they're having one like around Buffalo yeah, this year, it's and been stuff really like rough. that where they get massive amounts of snow. Uh, and I mean, there's well, there's snow on the ground for you know eight and ten months at a time. Uh, those there would certainly be impacts, uh, but I mean, it wouldn't be so that you couldn't get to a hospital. It certainly wouldn't be that you couldn't you know get to relatives or know what's going on on the rest of the world. And this idea where. They couldn't get any supply in until mid-June. I mean, that's something that's just inconceivable today. I mean, we can get supply to the North Pole. Yeah, I, and it's it's just a different it's a, just a different world, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. um, so this that winter was terribly harsh. It yeah. was worse than anything we've experienced in our lifetimes, uh, and it, it would be it would cause real difficulty today. But I mean, uh, uh, we can't even conceive of uh, with the technology we have today to deal with it. Man, it's, it would just be completely different. Yeah. And uh, it's certainly not impossible that we see a winter like that. I've, I can't. I mean, I can't. You know, as you're describing this one, where these storms keep coming, I, I tend to living in Wyoming. I tend to think of there's always there will always I count on a good storm in May. Uh, spent those some point in May when I graduated uh, from college, and uh, what was that? 2014. We had a big, big drop of snow. Yeah, we got we got snowed. It was it was college graduation, and we got snowed in so that you couldn't get out of yeah, the that hotel. Yeah, that was the that was the what the end of May there. So, so I mean, that certainly happens. I mean, you know, Wyoming, you can get you can get a big snow in the middle of summer yeah. sometimes too. I mean, uh, but uh, again, it, you know, the, the the length of this one is really what yeah. made a huge difference. Of course, we also don't expect today, though it still happens today all the time, or you know, very many winters, is that you get the ice uh, dams yeah. and you get lots of flooding. And that, I mean, that that was so much more severe that year than anybody had expected because of the the sheer volume of snow over the number of blizzards that occurred. So those still happen. We still have flood events today that come from it. Uh, but I mean, in a, a you know, again, in a time when you have much less ability to communicate across the distance and everything, those are just much more deadly. Yeah. And you just don't have a way. I mean, we can we can muster resources from much further away and get them mm -hmm. relatively quickly. Whereas, you know, in, in the, if you're stuck in South Dakota in 1880 and it snows like that, I mean, there's 
he might not have any contact with someone, you know, yeah. three houses down. Yeah, for months, months <laughs> at a time. Yes, even people right next door. You know, they had cattle that were dying because they couldn't walk and they could see the, 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 the hay that had been put out, but they couldn't get to it. So, I mean, certainly you couldn't get, you necessarily get down the street. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll still, I mean, there's still people are killed by weather yes. today. It certainly happens. But, I mean, the, the, the breadth of this compounded by the, you know, the limitations of the time just made this so much more more yeah. and that's what makes the ending of this video really so uh, interesting is that really uh, you know the people that talked about it what they really talked about is oh you know when spring came it was such a blessing and I mean and that they that they recognized in this terrible terrible winter that it killed livestock and destroyed the crops and and uh, and killed people and and, it, and what the lesson they got out of that is how wonderful spring was and I just wonder if we would even be vaguely that optimistic because these years, you know, you got a snowstorm, especially one of the, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago when the snow went all the way down into Texas yeah. and stuff like that. All you do is get complaints. And does, does anyone say that, you know, this this shows us how, you know, the importance of spring, that, I mean, you know, that, that uh, the, the bad time is what contrasts with the good time. Uh, I mean, there's just a resilience that you have to almost feel like we've lost in the modern world. Yeah, I kind of I kind of feel that way, too. And I, I thought that was really special about this episode, too, is that optimistic ending after uh, <laughs> uh, something that must have been awfully difficult to live through. Uh, and something that yeah. inspired. I mean, think today that their lesson would be, I'm getting back out of South Dakota. <laughs> yeah, I'm moving somewhere I'm, south. I'm never going to Minnesota again. You know, good golly. Uh, and, and and instead, you know, the, you know, the people were like, you know, spring, spring's come. Yep. You know, the, the, after every cold, there's warm. Uh, and that's that's just incredible. And that's you know that's what you had to do to live on the frontier like that. I mean, if you didn't have that sort of resilience, you never would have gone there. You certainly wouldn't have stayed. Yeah, yeah. That's and I mean that's that's ultimately something that I think most of us uh, don't. We just don't experience the the same hardships. And I, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think our our ancestors in 1880 would think that it's just amazing that we live in a world now where, you know, you can get fresh strawberries almost any time of the year and we have yeah. central heating. Yeah. You can't and... say it's a bad thing that we can actually get food to you, even if there's a no. blizzard, uh, but, but you, it can, it makes you wonder, I mean, how bad can things get? I'm, I'm one of the lessons that I get is the history guys that we've always faced yeah. worse and we've always gotten through it. And so what I, if you think things are awful, then, you know, sometime somebody has gone through much worse and they're still around and you know, they're your ancestors and you're still here. But it does make you wonder, you know, how bad things could be yeah. and, and how we would respond if we would respond in the same way. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. It seems it seems know. to me I always have a reason to complain no matter what season it is. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I, I used to I used to think that oh, there's, there was a season that was better than another. And then at some point I was like, you know, it's cold and I, I it's slushy and my car's getting stuck in the snow or it's spring and then my allergies are going crazy. And then it's summer mm -hmm. and it's 95 degrees. And <laughs> so I'm like, man, I just I seem to find a reason to complain no matter no matter what. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, you remember, well, they always said about Minnesota that you got to you got winter and mosquitoes. Those are the two seasons. Or uh, and yeah, yeah, it's, it is. It's it's you know it's either hay fever or freezing. Yeah. And, uh, so I mean, it's and you know it's it's nice to be in a place that has seasons. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, I enjoy that that we have actual seasons where I am. But I think wherever you are, there's a reason to complain about the weather. I do occasionally see some people be like, "Oh, we had a you know you should think about the fact that we had a beautiful fall this year." Because I think so often <laughs> eh, we kind of skip over that and forget that, oh, it's nice to have. Because here, here in Wyoming, very often it goes from being essentially warm to snowing. And then it just doesn't – there's not much of a fall. Yeah, there's no, there's no discernible fall <laughs> in, the, in the great tundra up uh, north. There's, well, this, time, this year we had, uh, we had a reasonably long fall, but the, uh, I swear I never, I never had any time to rake leaves up. The trees didn't drop their leaves, and then there was snow, and so. And then there was snow on the ground, yeah, and they're all. And stuck the leaves in are still head. under the snow now. <laughs> That's. <laughs> uh, so that'll be a problem for for spring, Josh. But uh... it will be a problem for spring, Josh. But I mean, spring, Josh is doing better than spring, Josh would have been in eighteen eighty one. That's what that's yes. the lesson. That and in that eighty to eighty one. And around. well, and the worst the worst that can happen to me is that my my heater goes out, which we did we did have a problem with our heater actually right during that that uh, that bomb cold thing that brought brought everything gosh we were down to negative negative 40 something we were not the coldest place either but i uh, that was i can see uh how much you take for granted the fact that you know we can keep our houses heated and oh yeah yeah absolutely not not heated by yeah. bomb cyclone we're gonna have to go find a bomb cyclone in history to do because that's just such a good name right it's a, and they're really interesting uh, actually i enjoy these i enjoy we've got a lot of severe weather uh, episodes 
Uh, and they're really interesting because it's uh, it's it's such it's it's interesting how weather and history so interact, yeah. uh, and that how how uh, weather transforms major historical events. So we you know talk about it, whether that meant you know rain at Waterloo, uh, which you know kept Napoleon from attacking until later in the yeah. day, or uh, uh, the way that it impacted you know these people out on the Great Plains in in the winter of eighty eighty one. I mean, it's, I mean, something we still, I mean, you know, I don't know. They, maybe there'll be some point where people can control the weather on Earth. I mean, certainly we are a lot better able to deal with weather, but still, weather can quite easily change, transform our history. And so it's, you know, no matter what choices you make, yeah. you know, there's still going to be things bigger than you that drive these. Yeah, events. we had that. We did that episode recently on the, the, the bleak midwinter, the 1430s, mm-hmm. which they think is possibly. Uh, one of the coldest decades in uh, in human history, and uh, that's yeah, yeah, several several bad winters yeah. over the course of a single decade. Yeah, and we also did the the, the winter the, the the summer or the the year yeah. without a summer uh, that was related to a volcanic explosion, yeah. and uh, you know, and that stuff. You know, there'll be some version of the what the medieval warm period or the little ice age. I mean, I, presumably humans going to be around long enough to deal with those you know those long term weather yeah. trends. Uh, I mean, even the setting aside, all the debate today about how the impact of humans is impacting climate and weather and all that sort of things. The fact that climate has come and transformed, it's taken places that were great, you know, I mean, there there was a while where, you know, uh, Norsemen lived in Greenland. Uh, and the reason they left Greenland is because, you know, you, you got through a, a cold spell <laughs> and you find out that if you got several winters in a row in Greenland that are good That's winters and, and you just you can't you can't keep your, your livestock alive. So there were periods where Greenland was good land uh, and you could keep your farm going there. And then there are point times when, no, yeah. you know, you can't live. Yeah. There. In the in, when I was doing the research for that 1430s episode, there was one that actually talked about uh, going through uh, a, a Viking settlement there and that what they find is they're like you know as we're digging through it you find that they start you know they start first they're not getting their harvest and you can tell because you know the the reeds weren't replaced or you can you can see when they start eating all of their like their milk cows and suddenly you're like mm-hmm. and like that's that's when desperation starts to set in and then you can see where they ate their pets and that's yeah mm-hmm. and and then they're they they seem and they either died or they that, left they got in their boat you know when it got warm and they and those they left, those were know. the choices and that's if you can and, and there's a number of there's a number of places yeah. too where uh you know they, you could live there and you'd be perfectly fine uh, but then you get a you know a decade of drought and and everybody yeah. leaves uh and uh, or whole cities that were built and then a river changes its course so i mean it's still i mean it can still happen today it does still happen today and and you know it's interesting with you know war going on in the world how bad this winter is it might make a difference in the, yeah. in the in, you know conflicts and things like that so it's it's interesting to connect them together but these these extraordinary weather events uh, I mean, they they really are maybe the most dramatic of history because uh, you know a winter storm actually has a lot more energy than uh, even a, a world war. Yeah, and we we all live through them. And I I don't know. We've I I don't think that I've personally lived through uh, something that I would be you know sit back and be like ah oh, that was the blizzard of the blizzard of 2015 or anything like that. Yeah, but... I, was, I was there for the blizzard of '86, and it was uh, was it '86 or '89? I guess I don't even remember. I mean, I remember being on the fourth floor of a hotel and the, and the snow was up to our See, window. But I've uh, not had that. But I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, I haven't. I've never been through a hurricane. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have lived through, you know, hurricanes or massive tropical storms and things like that. I mean, they, so I mean, a lot of us have lived through terrible weather events. Uh, but uh, you know, what you see is the farther back you go, the less able we were to do. I mean, if if we thought it was tough in eighty eighty one, imagine that people that were doing that before trains, you know. Uh, or imagine, you know, if you had a very mild winter in one of those winters where you moved everything was on the rivers. Yeah. Uh, if the rivers didn't freeze, then you couldn't move stuff. Yeah. yeah there's that numerous, numerous places where that might that that could literally mean, you know, the difference between life and death on, uh, yeah. on the frontier. And, and you have, you know, and, and people and then you get a lot more death from disease yeah. and everything because people are weakened. Or, I mean, you know, it's just a particularly cold winter meant that the Dutch fleet was caught and the you know, yeah. the French were able to capture the whole Dutch fleet frozen in the you know, frozen in the, in the, the bay. With the so I, it's. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, cavalry ca- capturing naval ships. So I mean, it is it is it's amazing the impact that weather has, uh, and it's amazing how dramatic those events can do. And I think there's going to be many more stories of these to tell. I mean, we talked about tornadoes and hurricanes and blizzards and and uh, and you know long winters and long summers and short summers and uh, those all have significant impacts on on history. I mean, who you know who would have thought about uh, that uh, this that one period of of cold winter for a decade. 
uh, meant the sorts of changes that really prepared Europe for the the Little Ice Age. You yeah. know, the, the you know the, the the proliferation of chimneys. We talk about that there, and so they. I mean, it's it's all it's really really interesting stuff. It's it's I think still relatively easy to put yourself in the shoes of someone that was living through that winter in eighty eighty one. Uh, I mean, just today, because, you know, most of us live in a place where you can get a bad storm and you don't have to be able to get out your door. And then just try to imagine that, put that together and, and see that, that, you know, help couldn't arrive. They couldn't open the road until sometimes mid-June yeah. before those trains. I, I have to imagine that surviving that required a, a lot of effort and honestly, probably a lot of community uh, people getting together in yeah, ways I mean, that... Yeah, yeah every, I'm sure everybody was sharing yeah. and helping and, yeah, and, and hearty, hearty people. I mean, you know, the, the people that went out on the frontier, whatever you want to, you want to say about the frontier, uh, these are not people that were easily spooked. That, and, you know, that's a lot of that. I mean, we mentioned uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder. I think it's her I think it's her sister-in-law that's in the in the episode that mentions that wrote some stuff about it. But, I mean, these, one year the grasshoppers came to eat everything. And then another year you had a, you had a winter where it stopped snowing for nine months at a time. And, yeah, there's, you know, they, they survived. They endured. Yeah. You know? that's, that's amazing. And it really shows, you know, that... Uh, there's almost nothing that we can figure out that humans aren't going to figure out how to live through because we just, uh, that's the nature of the species. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? Uh, you know what I, I picked up today is something called The Warrior's Way. Uh, but it is uh, it is a series, one of the Magellan series, and it talks about uh, you know, different uh, warrior societies and their technology, their tactics, you know, how things work. So the first episode's about Vikings, uh, and there's a lot in there. Actually, there's a lot in there that surprised me uh, about it. But I mean, it, yeah, but I mean, some of it, you know, I think we've all figured out now that Vikings didn't actually wear helmets with horns on them and things like that. But uh, you know, the the uh, the technology of it, the nature of the the ships, which were a huge deal with how Vikings did things, they moved so quickly. Uh, and uh, so that they could be, you know, just lightning raids so that, you know, uh, 50 guys could get off a boat and manage to do a whole bunch of damage uh, and then be gone before anybody could raise up, you know, any any resistance to them. So it's uh, it's a great I mean, it's, it's straight up history. And it's uh, you learn about uh, there's, I think, six in the series. So, you, you know, you go all the way through and learn about how they fought differently, how the technology of their military worked differently. Uh, and so that how different they were as warriors. And, and uh, it's, you know. Uh, any historian, a lot of us historians, is the sort of thing that you know we're really most you know interested in is that the that drama of war yeah. and like and everything like that. So really enjoyed the first episode. Looking forward to watching the rest of the episodes. Uh, so what have what have you been watching on Magellan TV lately? So what I, one of the ones I was watching recently was it's a it's a two episode kind of mini series, and it's called A Hundred Days to Victory, and it's about World War One. It's about that really that last that last piece of World War One. The the first episode is called the Spring Offensive, and it's talking about that German offensive following uh, Russia uh, leaving the war. And so it talks about essentially, first of all, the surprise that the Allies, uh, they were, it was unexpected and really almost unprecedented for the war after having just essentially sat still on those borders for so many months. Uh, and the Germans took a bunch of land. And then it was really talking about how the Allies dealt with that and how they chose their their the generals that were going to lead it and how they were going to turn the tide which of course eventually uh, they did and it's a really really interesting look at it it's super uh, actiony actually there's a lot of they've got lots of uh, fighting scenes and uh, tying all that in with these various historians talking about it so it's a really really interesting uh, look at that last piece of World War One, and I really recommend it. As with all Magellan documentaries, it's high quality, it's accurate, and it's really, really fun to watch. Uh, that 100 Days Offensive was really fairly extraordinary. Yeah. That last year, 1918, uh, I mean, it's, it really could have gone different directions, yeah. and so it's interesting. I'll have, to, I'll have to check that one out. I'm sure I'll love it. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com dot com slash history guy where we will always have a deal for you sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free again that's try.magellantv.com slash history guy next up the history guy tells the story of the lady franklin bay expedition and the members heroic survival there is a unique risk and heroism in exploration, the human need to discover the unknown, and that risk is particularly grave in extreme environments like the Earth's polar regions. Illustrated by the 1845 Franklin Expedition, where 129 officers and men of a British polar expedition went missing. 
Not a one of them ever returned home. In 1881, the United States joined an extraordinary international effort to study the Earth's polar regions, and the American expedition would end in a dramatic fight for survival. The 1881 Lady Franklin Bay expedition deserves to be remembered. Karl Weyprecht was an officer in the Austro-Hungarian Navy, having participated in the Austro-Sardinian War. Between 1872 and 1874, he helped to lead an Austro-Hungarian expedition to the Arctic that discovered the far northern archipelago of Franz Josef Land. In 1875, Weyprecht received the prestigious Founders Gold Medal from the Royal Geographic Society for his leadership of the expedition. Weyprecht made an extraordinary suggestion to a meeting of German scientists in 1875. He suggested an international effort for polar research. The Encyclopedia Artica explains, Most of the early polar expeditions in the Arctic were motivated by the keen desire to discover a northern sea route from the Atlantic to the Pacific, in order especially to establish connection with the Spice Islands of the Orient. That is, the expeditions hoped to find a northern sea route over the pole to the Far East. In the 19th century, Arctic exploration had largely turned into an international competition to be the first nation to reach the pole. Only in the latter part of the century did there evolve a desire to scientifically study the polar regions. Weyprecht suggested an international effort to set up a series of scientific stations, ideally in both the Arctic and Antarctic, using similar methods of measurement. By coordinating a series of measurements, including meteorological, astronomical, and earth magnetic data across multiple locations, a broader interpretation of the data would be possible. Weyprecht's suggestion would become the extraordinary international effort called the International Polar Year, which took seven years to organize the first international polar year crossed over the winter of 1882 to 1883. Sadly, Weyprecht did not live long enough to realize his dream. He died of tuberculosis in 1881. The first international polar year was a massive endeavor. It included establishing and manning 12 stations in the Arctic, two in the sub-Antarctic, and six on the east coast of Labradors, Wills working with some 40 meteorological observatories around the world. The program would mean sustaining a population of nearly 700 in some of the most extreme conditions on Earth. The effort officially included 12 nations, and for one of those, it was what has been described as the first direct participation in an international program. The upstart and still largely isolationist United States would participate, establishing bases in both Port Barrow, Alaska, and on or near the shore of Lady Franklin Bay, north of Greenland, in the Canadian Arctic. The effort had, at best, lukewarm support within the administration of James Garfield, and especially with Garfield's Secretary of War, Robert Todd Lincoln, son of the former president, who the expedition commander would later write showed avowed hostility to the program. While Congress funded the establishment of the stations in March of 1881, the effort was what the Naval History Magazine of the U.S. Naval Institute described as an exercise in austerity. The sundry civil bill of March 3, 1881 appropriated a sum of just $25,000 for the station at Lady Franklin Bay. While Arctic exploration had generally been under the auspices of the Navy, the Lady Franklin Bay expedition would be conducted by the U.S. Army Signal Corps, which had general responsibility for meteorological study in the United States and, at the time, managed the Weather Service. In 1880, Civil War hero William Babcock Hazen had been appointed the Army's Chief Signal Officer and had refocused the Signal Corps on basic research. He and the Corps had been among the most enthusiastic supporters of U.S. participation in the International Polar Year effort. Among the obstacles of a skeptical government, the expedition had to survive an embezzlement scandal by the Corps' chief disbursement officer, Arctic explorer Henry Howgate, who had been among the most vocal supporters of the expedition. Hazen chose 37-year-old Lieutenant Adolphus Greeley of the 5th U.S. Cavalry to lead the mission. Greeley was a career army officer who had risen from the rank of private to brevet major during the Civil War. The entire expedition would eventually include 25 men. The Baltimore Sun noted in June 1881 that the participants were picked out on account of general health and other points of fitness from a number who volunteered to go with Lieutenant Greeley. The members of the expedition were described as composed entirely of young men, their ages averaging no more than 29, and according to the paper, they are all enthusiastic over the trip and anxious to get away. Ominously, however, the paper also noted that none of the party had ever been on a similar expedition, although Greeley argued that long and hazardous duty on the western frontier had inured the greater part of the men to dangers, hardships, and exposure, and developed in them that quality of helpfulness so essential in Arctic service. 
Not only did none of the participants have experience in Arctic exploration, but the budget and lack of institutional support meant that the expedition was prepared with virtually no support from experts of Arctic survival. Greeley wrote, No friendly board of Arctic experts with lavish funds at its command, assisted by its counsel and advice, but the preparation in this case devolved entirely on the commanding officer of the expedition. In many ways, the expedition was flawed from the start. The choice of Lady Franklin Bay had been made by Howgate, who had been making plans for an Arctic colony and who had led an ultimately unsuccessful expedition to establish such a colony in 1880. Lady Franklin Bay had been chosen partly because a large coal seam had been discovered there, offering ample fuel. The idea was to establish a base for Arctic exploration where explorers would live and become acclimatized. Each year, the members of the expedition could advance further north in a way that was likely to be more successful than, as the Baltimore Sun described it, by the sudden and forced invasions heretofore made in the Arctic regions. Howgate's new plan was to establish a base in 1881, have it resupplied in 1882, with the members of the expedition being picked up in 1883. But Howgate had become embroiled in a scandal, indicted for embezzling $370,000 via fraudulent government vouchers. Plans for the expedition, however, continued. Several of the expedition participants had, in fact, originally volunteered for Howgate's 1880 expedition. But the entire plan depended upon the assumption that Lady Franklin Bay, which was the farthest north of the stations that participated in the International Polar Year, would be reachable by boat every summer. And that incorrect assumption would have deadly consequences. On July 7, 1881, the expedition embarked from St. John's, Newfoundland to Lady Franklin Bay aboard a steam-powered Arctic sealer named SS Proteus arriving at Lady Franklin Bay August 11th. The Daily American of Nashville, Tennessee reported on September 16th of the safe arrival of the Greeley colony in Lady Franklin Bay. Despite the approaching winter, the trip had been easy for the Proteus, which, according to the paper, could easily have gone much farther north than the latitude of Lady Franklin Bay. However, in returning to St. John's, the ship had to cut through 300 miles of ice. It turns out the summer of 1881 had been particularly warm across the northern hemisphere, resulting in drought in the American Midwest. In fact, it would be years before a ship would again be able to make it to Lady Franklin Bay. Greeley's camp was called Fort Conger, after U.S. Senator Omar D. Conger of Michigan, who had supported the expedition. Naval History Magazine described the fort as a prefabricated, single-story, three-room hut, as austere as a prison barracks. A biography of Greeley would later describe the building as a three-room building, 59 feet long, 16 feet wide, and 9.8 feet high. Lean-tos on either side of the building housed supplies. The double wall construction of the main building consisted of long wooden boards, covered with tar paper. The famed Arctic explorer, Commander William Perry, would later call the building grotesque in its utter unfitness and unsuitableness for polar winter quarters. Greeley's party was joined there by two Eskimo hunters and a contract surgeon, Dr. Octave Pavey. Just a month after their arrival, President Garfield died on September 19th, the result of an assassin's bullet from the previous July. But cut off from the world and communications, the men of the expedition didn't know his fate. Despite the quarters, the expedition was well supplied, and members managed the difficult task of collecting an enormous amount of data on tidal patterns, weather, and polar magnetism, which required, according to Naval History Magazine, 526 separate round-the-clock observations. There was a surprising development, however, as the expedition's second-in-command, Lieutenant Frederick Kislingbury, dissatisfied with the expeditionary regulations, requested that he be relieved from duty with the expedition. Greeley allowed him to be relieved, but he was too late to catch the Proteus and ended up staying with the expedition. According to Greeley, he remained consequently at Conger, doing no duty and with no further requirement than that he should conform to the police regulations of the station. There were ducks and musk oxen to be hunted in the area, and over the fall, Greeley reported that 26 musk oxen, 10 ducks, a hare, two seal, and a ptarmigan rewarded our hunters' efforts during September and October, which afforded about 6,000 pounds of fresh meat for the party and nearly an equal amount of offal for our dogs. The hunting and supplies left in the summer was enough to provide not just sufficient food for the men, but enough for a sumptuous Christmas celebration feast consisting of mock turtle soup, salmon, fricasseed guillemot, spiced musk ox tongue, crab salad, roast beef, eider ducks, tenderloin of musk ox, potatoes, asparagus, green corn, green peas, coconut pie, jelly cake, plum pudding with wine sauce, several kinds of ice cream, grapes, cherries, pineapples, dates, figs, nuts, candies, coffees, and chocolate. 
Eggnog was served to the party in moderate quantities, and an extra allowance of rum was also issued in celebration of the day. In addition to their daily scientific readings, the party also engaged in exploration, and on one sledging expedition, Lieutenant James Lockwood and Sergeant David Berenard reached what was, at that point, the farthest north an exploration party had ever reached. The winter passed, and the men kept themselves entertained with public performances, checkers contests, and lengthy discussions over the relative merits of the cavalry and infantry arms of service. As spring and summer came, the men of the expedition busied themselves with further exploration of the area and hunted as best they could, although Greeley noted that the scarcity of large game and the shyness of the birds made it profitable only as exercise and employment. But by far the biggest issue the summer of 1882 was that the steamer that was supposed to bring them supplies for the coming year did not arrive. In fact, the resupply ship, a steamer named SS Neptune, was prevented by ice and weather from getting within 150 miles of Camp Conger. According to plan, if the ship was unable to reach the fort, it was to offload supplies in a cache as far north as possible. But instead, the steamer only offloaded a small amount of supplies and carried the rest back to St. John's. The army, for its part, merely assumed the expedition had enough supplies for a second winter. But the failure of the resupply ship offered problems for both provisions and morale. As Greeley put it, it is obvious that our second winter could hardly pass as pleasantly as the first. While the members of the expedition were still in exceptionally good health, Greeley had to face a contingency. If the supply ship failed to show up again in the summer of 1883, then his orders were to take his group overland to the south, where caches of stores were supposed to have been left for them. According to plan, if the relief ship was unable to reach Lady Franklin Bay in the summer of 1883, it was to leave a supply cache and support party prepared to stay the winter at Littleton Island, thus being able to assist the expedition in an overland journey south if necessary. The relief force, again aboard SS Proteus, sailed on June 29th. This time, they were accompanied part of the way by a naval vessel, USS Yantic. Not only was the relief group unable to reach Greeley and his men, but disaster befell them. The Proteus became trapped in pack ice, and on July 23rd, its hull was crushed, and she sank. Only daring action by Navy Lieutenant John Caldwell, who crossed over 900 miles of ocean in an open boat to find the Yantic, managed to rescue Proteus's marooned crew. The expedition's supplies and mail sank with the boat and by then there had been no outside contact with the Lady Franklin Bay expedition for nearly two years. On August 9th, Greeley and his team, still in good health and hauling their copious scientific records and instruments, began their trek south as planned, hoping to reach supply caches that were supposed to have been left for them. The group traveled as far as possible on their small steam launches, but eventually had to abandon them as the ice became impassable by boat. They reached a small island called Cape Sabine, According to the plan, there should have been significant supplies laid in for them there, and the relief group that was supposed to have been left on Littleton Island should have been able to observe them and bring supplies. In fact, all that had been left on the island was a small cache. With morale sinking, low on supplies, and only an insufficient makeshift shelter with a whaleboat for a roof, the men of the expedition would have to survive yet another Arctic winter. Greeley grimly calculated that even with careful rationing, their food could only last until March, well before they could hope for rescue. What followed Greeley described as intense cold and bitter frost, disaster and slow starvation, insanity and death. Lieutenant Lockwood's diary read on October 21st, We are now in our hut, but it is not yet finished, and it is cold and uncomfortable. Our constant talk is about something to eat and the different dishes we have enjoyed, or hope to enjoy on getting back to civilization. We are all hungry, all the time. What supplies they did have were rotting, and the men were eating moldy biscuits intended for the dogs. The men started to succumb to frostbite and scurvy. First to die was Private W.H. Cross on January 18th. More deaths came in early April, and Lieutenant Lockwood died on the 9th. Greeley described him as a gallant officer, a brave, true, and loyal man. Sergeant Brainerd, who had with Lockwood set the record for the farthest north exploration, said, To me it is also a sorrowful event. He had been my companion during long and eventful excursions, and my feeling towards him was akin to that of a brother. Biederbick and myself straightened his limbs and prepared his remains for burial. That was the saddest duty I have ever yet been called upon to perform. The condition of the living was not much better. Brainerd said of it, Our own condition is so wretched, so palpably miserable, that death would be welcomed rather than feared. Greeley wrote, Our condition grows more horrible every day. No man knows when death is coming, and each has long since faced it unmoved. 
In May, a private Charles Henry was caught stealing food. He'd been caught before and Greeley ordered him to be shot for disobeying, saying that this order is imperative and absolutely necessary for any chance of life. The Washington establishment was still shockingly sanguine about the expedition's fate, and it took the efforts of William Hazen and his wife to wage a crusade in the press and finally shame the Arthur administration into action. Hazen criticized Secretary Lincoln so strongly that he was court-martialed, but their efforts won the support of the public, and a well-funded expedition was planned for a rescue attempt in the summer of 1884. A relief squadron reached Littleton Island on June 22nd. From there they discovered caches, including where Greeley had cast the expedition records and scientific gear. A letter there directed them to the camp. Only seven of the 25 men of the expedition were still living when the relief force arrived on June 23rd, and Sergeant J.E. Ellison died shortly thereafter from his frostbite. The men had only had, quote, a few square inches of soaked seal skin to eat in the 42 hours prior to their rescue. The commander of the rescue team opined that another 48 hours delay would have been fatal to all now living. Surprisingly, among those that survived was Lieutenant Greeley, despite the fact that the press described him as a delicate man. The survivors were hailed as heroes upon their return home. There was almost immediately controversy with accusations that the men had resorted to cannibalism. The evidence on the bodies of the dead seemed to confirm the suspicion, but Greeley merely said, that so far as his personal knowledge went, no act of this sort had been committed. Adolphus Greeley continued in the Army and was eventually made the Army's Chief Signal Officer, where he was responsible for the construction of telegraph lines during the Spanish-American War. He retired a Major General in 1908, and in 1935, on his 95th birthday, by a special act of Congress, was awarded the Medal of Honor in recognition of his distinguished career. Despite the tragedy and the controversy, the expedition collected valuable data for the first international polar year, and Fort Conger continued to be used for Arctic research, notably by Robert Perry in 1905 and 1908. The Lady Franklin Bay expedition represented the risks of what has been called the heroic age of polar exploration. So we chose this episode to match with it because with to match with the 1880-1881 long winter because they're really really close together, and in fact the you know the yeah. 1881 uh, summer is part of why uh, they thought they'd be able to reach uh, the the uh, yeah. location because yeah, they had a particularly, particularly warm pretty long summer, and so they were of the impression then that that bay would be open every year, uh, and therefore they could get there with resupply, and it just happened to be an extraordinary year that you could actually get up to Lady Franklin Bay. Yeah, it has to be, you have to consider it a, you know, a bad sign uh, when the bay is named after the expedition that went up there and everybody froze to yeah. death and you never found them again. No, so, not a lot else. <laughs> we're taking a lot on. Yes, we're going to go to the place where we named it after the dudes. We don't even know what happened to them. It is a, it is a particularly, I mean, it is very far north. When you look at that on a map, it is oh, yeah. very much, I mean, this yeah. is the middle of nowhere. It, and they were breaking some of the records yeah. for the farthest north exploration yeah, up there. Yeah, so it was, it was a lot. And it's interesting because the U.S. hadn't participated yeah. in that sort of thing before. And that we took on what was really by far the most challenging of the stations. Yeah do that i mean the whole the story behind how we decided to do that is itself extraordinary because that was this was not a nation that participated in international scientific research it's one of the i mean it's a really interesting time to look at and honestly to see some of the some of the opposition to it and just how isolationist the u.s was you know in the in the 1880s uh, because i i mean these days i think we we would generally find it more uh, more expected that we were leading some kind of scientific expedition like that yeah absolutely and yeah. and it's it's interesting to see you know i mean by the time of the international geophysical year when we were building all the stations down in antarctica i mean we were the yeah. leader and we expected that we would be the leader on that and this is a time where we're like what you know we don't, we don't do that it's interesting that one of the biggest opponents of it was Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert. Yeah, Lincoln, no, that's that it's said. it's he ends up playing such a he plays a large role in that whole. And of, of course, you you did an episode on him, but it's it's interesting to me when when uh, I'm doing topics and listening to topics about the the Gilded Age. I mean, he just he's constantly popping up. He was very involved, and not you know he was never president, but he was always in in roles, and people cared about what he, he was. Thought. He was in power for a long time. Yeah. They tried to nominate him a couple of times, but yeah, and so he was. You know, who who'd have thought of what it meant to be Secretary of War under the Arthur administration? Yeah. One of the things that meant is that they, they didn't give appropriate funding to the Lady Franklin Bay dudes and left them left them up in the frozen north. Uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, and it's you know, it's interesting to have that piece of personality come in there. But it is you, you've got two sides of it. You've got people who were very energetic about it because they really want the United States to be showing as a as a as a world power as something on the stage. Uh, they wanted to develop uh, the Signal Corps because that was the Weather Bureau at the time. Uh, and and uh, they, they, you know they wanted to, they thought that America was the sort of nation should be on the forefront of of exploration and they they understood what it meant to be competing for who got to the pole first and that sort of thing and uh, uh, competing at the time too that we've got the old isolationist mm-hmm. nature of the United States saying this is not our business this is not how we should spend our money we don't want to put money into the military and those two are really competing here that really is you know the United States moving into the 20th century that really is that kind of that shift in our vision, you know, at the same time that, you know, we're suddenly building a Navy that can leave the shores, right, and go yeah. out to sea, uh, that is the same time uh, that we are, uh, that we're, that we're planning this expedition. But it's also interesting that it's contemporaneous with the, 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 the winter, the 8081 winter, uh, because, uh, you know, the, it's that we're, we're so much more developed on the East Coast, yeah. you don't think about it, you know, we, we think about the West at that time, and, and we're living, I mean, crazy people living out on the plains of South Dakota, and, you know, you don't really put that at the same time that we're sending scientific expeditions to try to reach, you know, as far north as you can reach. It is it is a really interesting but they, they time. They did think, they thought that these soldiers that had served out on the frontier, they must be ready for the Arctic, you know, and, and it, and, which largely turned out to be apparently the case. Uh, but until they at end. least had some some of the some of the right, uh, you know, strategies and the idea that you're going to be facing problem after problem. It is interesting because when you first hear that, I think that they're like, oh, they're in the West. That'll prepare them for being in the Arctic. And the, yeah. <laughs> your first impression is. You've been to Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, because you live in Wyoming. Yeah, yes. so, so. <laughs> I'm not prepared for the Arctic. I'm, I'm sorry. It snows here uh, a lot sometimes. It's, 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 <laughs> they think about wyoming doesn't it <laughs> it gets cold but i'm like i i don't think that i don't think that uh, uh prepares me for what what these guys went through and uh, of course it's it's also just such a classically gilded age story because there's mm-hmm. all this embezzlement and repeated yeah, uh perfect every time you bring up someone someone because several people end up getting caught up in embezzlement scandals and yeah yeah and that, that are important to yeah. the expedition and yeah, yeah so it is very much a gilded age story it's i mean about you know aspirations that are kind of outreaching grasp yeah uh and uh, and uh, you know that whole idea of the gilded age where i mean it you know everything of Appear so brilliant, and then there's someone that's always underneath that gilding who's getting stepped yeah. on. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is truly a story of the Gilded Age and the, the transition in America and uh, a transition in how the world did yeah. science. And I mean, it's really it's it represents a lot in a transitional period, and especially the disaster of it mm-hmm. uh, also shows that. I mean, whenever you're making those changes, there's always there's always risk involved. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's amazing to me that these people were willing to take this risk that they volunteered for this duty. Uh, and uh, you know, it's extraordinary that because. Yeah, when they went up there, Garfield had been shot. They didn't know if he if he survived. Yeah. He was, you know, he was lingering. And two years later, they didn't know who was president. Had no idea. And they're still, you know, expected to to continue their work. And it, it ultimately, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it some so many of the pieces of it you look at now and feel like, ah, da, da, da. like th- this idea that they would like acclimatize slowly by, because <laughs> mm-hmm. my thought on that is too. Yeah, I that, don't know that. I that's... mean, that original idea was you, you'd send you'd send like these twenty guys, and they would spend the winter. Uh, and or two winters, and then the next year you would send some other guys. They would start at the base camp, and these twenty guys would go farther north. It's not. I just and eventually these twenty guys are going to end up on the North Pole. Yeah, it was an interesting. Well, I mean, because so many like the the Franklin yeah. expedition, so many had just gone up there and they just died. Uh, so I mean, it was it was more systematic than they had ever done before, uh, and it still turned out to be. You know, to be fair, the failing was not in the expedition. The failing was in the support. Uh, you know, they were supposed to have left supplies. They didn't. Uh, and uh, the first time, and then, the, you know, the second time their boat sank. So, they, you know, but so, I mean, and, you know, the weather was simply much worse in those summers than we thought yeah. that it was that it was going to be. But, I mean, these guys, they lived through two winters up there uh, without any support, two years out of out of communication with the rest of the world. And they were just fine. And it all went wrong when none of the, the support that yeah. was supposed to help them showed up. And then they had to leave the camp. Uh, and and come south, and that's when it finally all starts to fall apart. It, they, I mean, gosh, you can't you can't say that they didn't do their best, and it did Absolutely, well yeah. given the situation, honestly. But I, I mean, eventually, they're of course, uh, society kind of broke down there. I I don't know what they were supposed to do. You're talking about a part of the world, yeah. That, at the point that they're starting, uh, I mean, I I think they're heroes. Yeah. I mean, these are people that for for the betterment of humanity went up and took those enormous risks and, and end up so many of them dying yeah. in just horrible circumstances because uh, because they were trying to help. But they really are also just victims of 
poor yeah. government. Victim, you know, we made promises. We keep those promises, and and uh, it's extraordinary that we actually even put together the expedition that eventually yeah. rescued him. Because I think there were people that would have been just fine to leave him there. Well, apparently the government again. didn't seem all that concerned. So they're they're essentially like, oh, they're yeah. probably fine up there. <laughs> and and yeah. without, I mean, so we don't want to give any money to go figure out where they are. And so yeah, Gosh. it took. It took a large campaign in America to to literally shame them into sending naval vessels that ended up saving. Yeah, them. I mean, that was a part. Even the I mean, yeah, even the Inuit uh, hunters that were with them. I mean, you know, this way, but th- that was a they lost, end up losing yeah. both of them. Yeah, and those out there. Actually, when you read the description of the, and there was only so much you could do in, in fifteen minutes. When you read the description, they were so devastated both times when they lost the the Inuits, which in the book they call them Eskimo. I mean, that term's out of favor now. Uh, but uh, but I mean, they they that's that how they refer to them. Those those men were so important to them. Uh, that they had become very much family. I mean, there was no, yeah. uh, you know, there was no like you know racist attitude between them. Those were members of the family, and they're such, I mean, such important members of the family that they, they were just devastated uh, in the both the instances where they lost those two men. Uh, and, yeah, but I mean, also had you know had a guy that stole food yeah. enough that they shot him, and then his brother tried to sue him later for shooting him. And I mean, there's there's some disaster. And, Gosh, and, you know, and the weird thing, you know, like the, the second in command gets there and says, "No, I don't like this. I'm not going to be in the yeah, army anymore." I'm done. <laughs> uh, well, and at one yeah. point, the, the doctor decides that he's he's like, "Oh, my contract's up. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm." <laughs> uh, I mean, there's 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 all these problems going on, and it's it's really difficult. It's difficult to imagine going there in the first place and honestly i mean it's it's the oh, setting yeah. for a it's the setting for a horror movie i mean this is not that different from the thing oh, honestly, yeah. right yeah it is yeah <laughs> uh, yeah you wonder if they're gonna dig up a spaceship and have a monster yeah they're around. uh yeah. they're they're up there and at, at first you know as you tell the story that first summer or that first winter is that they're able to live relatively comfortably and they even have like yeah, a, a christmas yeah. in feast this, in and, this yeah, they have in this hut that was apparently built just terribly. But yeah, they have a Christmas feast and, they, and you know, they're all excited. And then the, 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 the supply ship doesn't yeah. show up. And they're like, well, the second winter will be harder. But I mean, they make it through that second yeah. winter. Not a single soul lost. And then, uh, uh, I mean, that's that's extraordinary. But then, you know, when the third, I mean, who'd have guessed that your resupply ship would sink and had to be rescued yeah, themselves? Yeah, that which, which apparently. But it's kind of, no no one seemed to think of, oh, you know, what does this mean for these guys up here? No one, that didn't occur to anybody. Like, uh, you know. No, they really did. They, we'll they, just they rescued them. the ship and they were just kind of like, oh, glad, that, glad that's over. And they must be eating ptarmigan or something and they'll get through. You know, eventually those guys will wander this, down. I mean, it was an area, it's an area of the world that uh, is incredibly sparsely populated it has been throughout all history mm-hmm. uh the, the, this was an area that was difficult to live in uh for, even for the people mm-hmm. who you know have ancestrally lived yeah, in those yeah. regions. In, inuit inuit didn't live yeah that's there. that's no there was no there's no <laughs> yeah, this, yeah this was an area of the world that was not not meant to be lived in by humans and that for the most part humans didn't didn't live in and they were able to survive two years it is you can't help feeling like uh you know they, they left those supplies and not enough to really even keep them keep them i mean, it wasn't enough to get them through a winter and you do have to feel like there was there were some mistakes there of people just deciding uh yeah it just didn't do what they said they were gonna yeah. do and i mean they had action they had a plan set up if, if any of this happened and they just didn't do it and so then they they struggled through all of that to get there and those caches that were supposed to be there weren't there and i can imagine the disappointment on that uh, and, you know, the drama of the story where the guy said, if, if we'd been two days later, all of them would be dead. I mean, that's that's extraordinary. That's how close it was. Uh, that's how close it was. And only you know, only seven of them survived. Yeah, it's uh, ultimately, you know, it does become a horror movie. And I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Uh, I honestly can't imagine what it must have been like with the totally hopeless at that point. I, I don't know how you yeah. after after, you know, more than half the expedition has died and uh, that you have no more strength. And all you've done. Yeah. Uh, and that. Yeah, you're, they're eating whatever seal skin, but I mean, they and there's a, I mean, there's a lot, so much more to the story yeah. they're able to fit into a video art length where they were, they were, you know, doing all sorts of desperate things to go try to see if they could find caches that have been left behind, uh, to look for caches of things that have been left for previous expeditions, uh, and uh, to go to the coast and try to see if they could get seal or anything. That's that's how they lost the last the the two Inuit hunters, uh, and I mean, it's uh, there. I mean, they they did everything you could desperately think, but in the end. They're in this hut that is made of nothing more than a few sticks and a, and a roof of a whale boat. Yeah. Uh, and they have almost no heat. They have almost no food. Uh, and they have no reason to think that rescue is coming. Uh, and I, just, I can't imagine the hopelessness 
uh, that takes over, and you know they they start dying, and I think in January is when they start dying, and you just watch watching people die one by one. And there's I put a little bit of that in there when I was saying we just you know you know death is coming, you just don't know which day it's going to be. Yeah. When it's, it's going to be you. It's I I mean it's it's that, who it's a it is dramatic, and I mean this is something that could would make a uh, an interesting film. Uh, something powerful. Absolutely, it would. Yeah, uh, and it's I, I. We find that so often as we get these stories where you can really, you can really see that th- this this would be a, a human, a deeply human uh, story, and and so we don't get them told. So I mean, that's one of the things I like, you know, like about our channel. But of course, you're, you're always right that uh, we we can never tell the the full story, or very rarely. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's we choose to do do our videos within about 15 minutes, and and uh, and so there's you're always trying to make decisions yeah. about what you need to leave out to tell the story. So we what our goal is to tell a story and make people. And I, what percentage of Americans think even knew about the Lady Franklin yeah. Bay expedition that even that it occurred? Uh, and so it's uh, I think that we encapsulate the drama here as best we can, uh, but there is uh, a full account of it. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know if you're if you're interested, you can learn a lot more about it, about what these men went through and what they yeah. did. And one of the most extraordinary parts about it is that they they kept this you know huge mass of scientific that all, that they managed to take that all with them and put yeah. it in cash, and it was all rescued, and so that they contributed to the to the to the geophysical year and that understanding that allowed us to go north from there. It really is incredible that they were able that despite everything, uh, they still accomplished you know their scientific goal, and that they that 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 was important enough to them that you know they tried to make sure that they could do it and that's uh gosh uh, again that's you know right at the edge of what as they were living knowing that that might be their only uh, legacy and yeah and 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 that they managed to save that and and through all of that it's it's absolutely extraordinary so now we have people who live permanently on the south pole Uh, and and we couldn't do that if it weren't for the things that we learned through things like the Lady Franklin Bay. Expedition. There there is a actually absolutely transforms very near uh, the Lady Franklin Bay. We've got a, there's a research station up there that doesn't have mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't have a permanent uh, residence, but people come in and out and do weather st- weather study and stuff up there, and it's it's really incredible uh, what we're what we're able to do now and how they how this expedition did contribute to that. Yeah, this ex- well then the Franklin yeah. expedition before that. I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, of men that went up there and died, so that we could learn what it took to learn to be able to go up there and live, and then to you know we know so much more about the world now because of that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.